Okay, this morning, jumping back into our study of the book of Acts. Uh, We are going to be studying chapter 17 in part this morning. Uh, We're actually moving along. It uh, may seem like it's been forever to you that we've been in the book of Acts, but based upon previous uh, preaching, I, I would estimate that we're moving along at a pretty good clip through Acts there's just so much stuff here. It, just, it amazes me every time I sit down at the beginning of the week and start reflecting upon the passage. And you know, as the week goes on, there's just more and more that comes to mind. And, you know, and, and, and typically when I'm preaching, things pop into my head that I've never even considered during the week. But let's read from the Word of God this morning. Now, when they had passed through uh, Amphipolis in Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews and Paul went in as was his custom and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another King Jesus." And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money uh, as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica and received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so many of them Therefore believed with uh, not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command from Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, uh, they departed. Ministry is a difficult thing. It has its ups and downs. We've been doing this now for a long time, and, and all of those that are here that have been part of this church understand the truth of that. Uh, that there are times of strife and struggle, but there are also times of very great blessing. And we just see this reflected in the life of Paul and his ministry. Certainly trials and tribulations, but, but that's not all. There are also lots of people that are coming to faith in Christ, and Paul continues to encourage them and strengthen them, and great blessings certainly for him and for the church as a result of that. But they have left Philippi now, which was basically the first principal city they visited in Greece. And they're, they're moving kind of to the southwest a little bit now. And uh, they're still in the northern part of Greece called Macedonia. And they come to 
Thessalonica, and as was true in a lot of the cities in the ancient Near East, uh, in this particular area, there was a Jewish synagogue there. So following the example of Jesus in, uh, in their prior practice, they go first to the Jews. And so they go to uh, the Jewish synagogue, and there Paul presents uh, his argument for, from the scriptures for the fact that Christ is in fact, or that Jesus is in fact the Christ, and he does that on three consecutive Sundays, or Sabbath days, Saturdays, not Sundays. Basically making a simple case that this in fact is the Christ, that Jesus is in fact the Christ. Now, Christos is the Greek equivalent of the word Messiah. So we understand that we're talking about the one who God promised to come and basically deliver the people. As would be the case in just about every place that Paul went. And like we said before, his practice was to go to the Jews first and then after the Jews reject the message, then to go to the Gentiles. There were some Jews who were persuaded you know, sometimes people look upon Paul's ministry and, 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 and they wonder how successful it was in some places. And, and maybe this would be one of those places where people might wonder. But what you're going to find is virtually every place that Paul went, there was some fruit. And virtually every place went, uh, Paul went, he first went to the Jews and only then to the Gentiles after that. But not only the Jews were persuaded, or some of the Jews were persuaded, but there was also a great many of devout Greeks who were. And not a few of the leading women. Paul would visit Thessalonica at least three times in his ministry. Once on his second journey... Twice on his third journey. And possibly more. And sometimes we think that we have a complete and absolute record of the missionary travels of Paul. I don't think we do. I think we only have a part of them. Well, one of the things that becomes, becomes obvious when you consider the, the two epistles that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians is it seems as though the, the church in Thessalonica was one that was consumed with questions about eschatology, questions about the times to come, the end times to come. They obviously greatly had a very great expectation that Jesus would be coming very, very soon, very quickly. That was 2,000 years ago. What you'd find, in essence, is the church in Thessalonica was very much like the churches that we and I might classify as charismatic churches today. A real emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, a real emphasis on uh, charismatic gifts. With a particular focus on the revelatory gifts, tongue speaking, prophecy, that sort of thing.
Now, one thing I want to talk about this morning is this, that all churches have some degree of commonality with one another. In other words, we have a core group of understandings about particular things that we hold dear, right? But at the same time, every church has some degree of uniqueness. You're not going to find two churches that are exactly identical to each other. For a reason, and the reason is this, is they don't have the same people in them. There's a sense in which every person in this room contributes to the per overall personality of Springs Presbyterian Church. That we, we, We're members of this big denomination. It's, it's big compared to lots of denominations, certainly not big compared to lots of other denominations. That we would all agree that the, the PCA is a significant ad, uh, uh, denomination. It's not some peripheral, meaningless, just a handful of churches kind of thing. But what holds the PCA together is a common understanding of doctrine. But given that, the personality of every church the particular things that maybe are emphasized in a particular congregation, the congregation itself. You know, every person that is part of this congregation has something to do with the forming of the overall personality of Springs Presbyterian Church. But what holds us together with the other churches in the PCA is our common understanding of doctrine. Our common understanding of what the Bible teaches. But within that framework, like, like I said before, there's a great deal of diversity. And that is something that is good. Because the personality of every church, as we said before, is determined by the personalities of the people who are part of it. But as we're going to find as we go through these uh, missionary journeys of Paul, that uh, the, 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 some that were there were persuaded. You get the idea it wasn't a whole lot, not a large percentage of the people, but some did. Some were devout Greeks. The others were leading women in the community. Now, I don't know how much you know about ancient Greek culture and society, but it placed women under the absolute authority of their husbands. In other words, there was no question as to who was the boss in a Greek household. And that was reflected in their culture. Women took a back seat to just about everything. And the same thing was true with Greek culture, or with Jewish culture, rather. Men were in charge, and everybody knew it. Woman's place was service in her home. Obviously, exceptions to it, we've already studied Lydia. 
right? She was a very wealthy woman that had, had a business of her own that she operated and that sort of thing. But she would have been very unusual in the culture of those days. So, for women to now be hearing and for men to now be hearing that husbands and wives are co-equal in the kingdom of God was nothing short of revolutionary. It was part of the message that these people had never heard in their whole lifetime. One of the crazy things about it is this. It'd be easy to argue that one of the reasons that women have so much freedoms as they do in this good old U.S. of A. is because we were Christian-founded. The crazy thing about it is the woke culture out there sees Christianity as the enemy when in fact Christianity has brought them to the point of having the liberty and the freedoms to be able to express those, their opinion in the public light. They have Christianity to thank for it. But they see Christianity as the absolute enemy. <laughs> this Paul's going to experience in most of the places, a lot of places where he visits, is that when things seem to be going his way, the Jews become very jealous. Just like they had been of Jesus. What was the driving force behind the Pharisees? In, in dealing with Jesus more than anything else, it was their absolute jealousy of his success and their, in light of their own failure. And we see that continues in, in the ministry of Paul and Silas. There was a Jewish synagogue there, and, and the Jews there had been actively engaged in converting as many of the Greeks to Judaism as they could, and apparently they were not having a lot of success in doing so. Theirs was a message of bondage. Paul and Silas's message, on the other hand, was a message of freedom. So how do they respond? The same way they responded to Jesus. They formed a mob. Motivated by nothing other than jealousy. Let me just tell you this. Personally, that was something that, that reached into my life when I was an unbeliever and, I, and, and people were beginning to witness to me. I eventually came to the point that I was jealous because they apparently had something that I did not have that I want it. 
Are there unbelievers around you that maybe look upon you with some degree of jealousy? The majority of the Jews, on the other hand, the leadership, they see Paul and Silas simply as the competition, and they're having success when they themselves aren't. Well, most of us would agree that there are times when numbers are a very good measure of success. That would be true in just about everything you think about. According to the world standard, quantity is lifted high very often at the expense of quality. Unfortunately, today, very often people use the same standards of the world in measuring the success or failures of particular church bodies. I mean, we look around this room, and, and most of us, a lot of us that have been here for a long time, we understand this room used to be probably twice as full as it is this morning. We've also watched as all of our children have grown up and moved away. Some people like, might look upon Springs Presbyterian Church today as somewhat of a failure. I don't think that's true at all. I think that God has called us to, uh, to a particular mission, and I think that we have been pretty faithful to that mission. One of the problems we're faced with today, being a smaller church, is people today, even Christians, generally speaking, measure success in numbers. I can't tell you, you know, e even when I go to, uh, to Presbyterian General Assembly, and, and I'm, we're talk I'm talking with other pastors about churches, one of the th what do you think one of the main things they want to hear? How many people have you got? The emphasis is not on quality. The emphasis is on quantity. And I just want to remind us this morning that we're not, our success is not measured in quantity. It's measured in quality. We don't have a lot of peripheral members. If you go to a lot of churches, there are people that maybe they're members of the church, but you hardly ever see them in church. Every person that is on our roll is here on a pretty doggone regular basis. And if they're not, they have a very good reason for not being here. You guys are obviously very much committed to the ministry of Springs Presbyterian Church. Jewish leadership in Thessalonica taking some wicked men of the rabble that they normally would have nothing to do with formed a mob and attracted or attacked the house of Jason evidently where Paul and Silas were staying they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the authorities 
just a lesson that sometimes our association with other brothers and sisters in Christ may mean some pain and suffering on our part. And listen to what they charged them with. This is Silas and Paul. They have turned the world upside down. In other words, the status quo is the way things are supposed to stay. The reality is this, is the gospel of Jesus Christ actually does turn the world upside down. It turns the world on its head. But in a good way, not a bad way, a good way. And Christianity is not just another religion, as, uh, as some people would have you believe. You may hear when you're talking with people about religion, you'll hear that from other people sometimes. It's just another religion. And all religions are equally valid and true. But there's some things about Christianity that are absolutely unique. And one of those is this, is all other religions focus on you doing particular things. Christianity's focus is on what Christ, our Savior, has done for us. What we do is a product of that. All other religions basically say save yourself. Christianity says you can't do for yourself what has to be done, yet God's standard must be met. Therefore, the only way you can make the mark or the cut is to have someone do for you what you are incapable of doing yourself. The world says you do, Christ says I did. The world says you make the mark. Christ says I made the mark for you. The world says you can make the mark and do what is necessary. Christianity says you are incapable of making the mark on your own. You're not capable of even coming close to the mark. Because the mark is perfect, absolute righteousness. The world says you can save yourself. You can do what's necessary to do that. Christianity says you are absolutely incapable of saving yourself or anyone else for that matter. Please, my friends, don't let anyone tell you that Christianity is just another religion. Because it's far from that. It is distinctly and uniquely very, very different than any other religion you will find on the planet.
But the Jews are jealous that Paul and Silas are having success. Things get hot in Thessalonica. So the brothers send Paul and Silas off by night. By night. So they're doing this stealthily. So no one, none of the authorities are going to know that this is taking place. They sneak them out of town. And that's going to be something that happens a number of times in their, their future ministry. They make their way to another Greek city, which is to the kind of southwest of Thessalonica called Berea. There was also a significant Jewish community in Berea, which you found, which was true in most of the, the cities of the ancient Near East. There was very often a significant Jewish presence. And in Berea, the, the, the Jewish congregation there is described as being more noble than those who were in Thessalonica. They actually responded to Paul and Silas' message very differently than the Jews had in Thessalonica. They received the word with eagerness and examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and they concluded that they were. That what Paul and Silas was te were teaching was biblical. Now, I certainly believe that there are particular fallacies that are very evident and prominent in the church today. One of those is this, is this is a pastor's job to teach me everything I need to know. Let me tell you something. I've been teaching some of you guys for 30-something years now. <laughs> and you still have a long way to go. <laughs> you know why? Because your pastor has a very long way to go. <laughs> I mean, we're in this very much together. Some people believe this. It's my pastor's job to read the Bible and then tell me, teach me what it says. I would say in certain circles of the, the visible church in the world today, that's a very prominent idea. There are, there are churches actually where, where the members are not encouraged to read their Bibles. They're discouraged from reading their Bibles. They take the approach that it's the clergy's responsibility to study the Bible and then tell you what it says. You've heard people say this, the Bible's just too difficult for most people to understand. Do you find that to be true? I mean, it is difficult in places. But the underlying message is very clear and very simple that anyone could lay hold of it without the help of anybody else other than the Holy Spirit. The Bible seems to be inconsistent in what it says. And what I want to scream is, where in the world do you find that one? It's amazing we have this book, as long as it is, written over thousands of years as it was, to be absolutely consistent in everything. Any realistic person can only conclude that there's been some kind of divine intervention here.
in the message that I'm preaching this morning, the message you've heard, oh, it's the same message that Paul and Silas were. It hasn't been changed. It hasn't been modified. It hasn't been proved upon. There's not some special version that's come out now that supersedes all the other ones. It's the same basic message generation after generation. I love the Bereans. Uh, I, you know, I've, been, I've been anticipating coming to this passage since we began this study. Because I love the Berean church. Because what they did was they took what Paul and Silas had said and they weighed it in the balance of Scripture. In other words, they didn't, they didn't understand or come to a conclusion based upon what their own thoughts were or their own thinking was or, or views or opinions about this, that, or the other. They let the Bible do their thinking for them. They accepted it, believed it, only because it withstood the test. There was biblical support for everything they heard Paul and Silas and the others preaching and teaching. It was consistent with Scripture. What the Jewish leadership was saying was not. It is my personal hope and prayer that all of you do the same thing. Don't just take what I tell you as biblical. Don't just take what I tell you as gospel truth. You, for your own good, need to weigh everything you hear from this pulpit in the balance of Scripture. And if it does not hold up, you need to cast it out. And if that means casting me out too, so be it. The problem is, and this is just a general kind of statement this morning, is this. Is that there are lots of people in churches across this nation and this world today that really don't know Scripture. They don't know Scripture well enough to weigh anything in the balance. You understand why it is so important that we all have a basic knowledge and understanding of all of it? Being able to scrutinize the scriptures is our only defense against false teaching. And let me tell you something. There is a lot of false teaching going on out there today in the name of Jesus. 
one of the things I love about our denomination is this, is everything, every view that we have on every single point is based upon Scripture. Not upon what makes people feel good and warm and fuzzy inside and this sort of thing. But the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible. Does that mean we're the perfect denomination? No. You know why? Because PSA, just like every other church, is full of sinful people. That's where the problem is. It's not with the Bible, it's with the people. Unfortunately, there are churches where people are encouraged not to read the Bible. The the official position for the Roman Catholic Church for a very long time was don't read the Bible. People, they withheld the word of God from their people. They didn't want them to read it. Their approach to things was we will read it, we will study it, and then we will tell you what it says. Now, they've changed their position more in more recent years, but that's the way it was for literally hundreds of years in the Roman Catholic Church. To understand that that was one of the principal and primary reasons for the Protestant Reformation, that probably the greatest thing the Protestant Reformation accomplished was it put the Bible in the hands of the people it should have been in all along, and that was the people in the pews. The Bereans could only do what they did because they knew the Old Testament scriptures. So if we're going to be able to defend our faith, there's only one way that it comes. And it's not an easy way. And that is for us to know the word of God. There is no substitute. There is no other way. But one of the principal and primary blessings of the Protestant Reformation was the fact that that the Bible was put back to where it was supposed to be all along, and that was in the hands of the people. Not the clergy. So that every believer would be able to, to have their own copy of the Bible, therefore they would be able to weigh everything they were taught in the balance of Scripture. You may not realize it, but, uh, and this, this blows my mind, that every single day in the good old U.S. of A., 168,000 Bibles are sold. Every day.
But it would be very easy to prove that for the most part, Bible knowledge is not increasing. It is actually decreasing with every generation. In a lot of churches today, preaching is more and more taking a back seat to the other elements of worship. This is another thing, the, Re- the Protestant Reformation, it, it made preaching the focal point of worship, not something that was on the periphery. That there is a movement today to move us in the opposite direction where, where there's not such a focus on Bible Spend, you know, 50% of your time singing and praying and doing things like that and maybe only 5 or 10% of hearing the Word of God expounded. That's because worship is becoming more and more something people think needs to be entertaining. Not challenging, not convicting necessarily. Something that will keep your attention for an hour without you being bored. Bible knowledge is decreasing with every generation. Study after study shows that. People know less and less. People in churches know less and less. Some, just some statistics that would blow your mind. You always wonder if this could even be possible. But I read somewhere this week that only half the adults who claim to be Christians can even name the four Gospels. But even in light of that, 88%, I still can't believe this, of U.S. households own at least one Bible. That's a huge percentage. The problem is they largely are not reading it and not studying it. It just sits there and collects dust. Some of you probably remember Jim Burgett. Remember Jim and Beverly Burgett? They suddenly appeared. I don't remember what brought them to Springs, but uh, she died sometime after they, f- they came. But Jim and I got to be pretty good. He, he's someone I spent a lot of time discipling Jim Burgett. But he was one of those rare people that you, you come across, even in the ministry, that, that had this, just this passion for the Bible that just was just, he, he couldn't feed himself enough. The more he knew, the more he wanted to know. He came to me after, I'm not sure how long I'd known him. Certainly it was less than a year. He came to me one day and he said, Keith, I just finished reading the Bible all the way through. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. You know what I said to Jim? I said, that's good, but don't let it in there. Start all over. I also said this to him. 
I said, sadly and unfortunately, you have just done something that most church people will not do in their entire lifetime. Once. Please don't be one of those. It's never, ever too late. Do you want to grow as a Christian? Do you want Christ to become more and more central to everything you are and everything that you do? Do you love him with increasing love and passion? Study his word. Read it. Don't just read it like you read the Reader's Digest. Let me tell you something. It's very helpful to pray before you actually open up the Bible and begin to read from it. Do you do that? Have you ever thought about doing that? Asking God to enlighten you to his truth and showing you how you can take what he, what he says to you and you can apply it in real and, and practical ways in the manner in which you live your life. And I'll be honest with you, I don't always pray. I read Bible pretty much every single day. And I've done it for 30 years. I don't know how many times I've read the Bible all the way through. I'd make a practice of trying to do it about once a year. So I've read the Bible probably 30 times. Ken Habedank's read it a lot more than I have. How he managed to do that, I don't know, but he did. My practice generally to try to read through the Bible in a year. And what you're talking about is maybe 10 or 15 minutes a day. Not a big chunk out of your day. There's nothing you can do better for yourself and for the believers around you than to immerse yourself in God's word constantly and continually. And there's nothing that's going to prepare you better to live your life in this world for Christ Jesus than to spend that time in the Word of God. And let me tell you, God has given you and I a privilege that most people have never known in their whole lifetime. There are a lot of places in the world today that it's illegal for you to have a Bible. We have the freedom to do it because God has given us the freedom to do it. We need to take absolute and complete advantage of that great privilege. Let me tell you, as much as I've studied, every time I get up for my reading time, I'm going... I don't know how many times I've thought this to myself, and I'm sure Ken and other people here too, is I don't ever remember reading that before. And I've read it 30-something times. You may be struggling a lot where you're at. I don't know. 
you know. And there's some things that you can substitute other things for, but let me tell you something. Simple reading and study of the Bible is just not one of them. If you want to grow, you have to do this. It's not a question of possibly or perhaps. If you're serious about growing in your faith, there's only a f- one thing that's going to help you do that, and that is to know the Bible, to study it, to be a Berean. Let me tell you, I would love nothing more than for everyone leaving this room today to go home, and when you get home, open your Bible up and measure everything that I have said to you in the balance of Scripture, and if you find something I said that is not supported by Scripture, call me and tell me, please. Now, let me just say one more thing. I'm accountable to the PCA. I mean, the people that have real authority over Keith is the presbytery. In other words, you you hire me and fire me. But my authority rests not in Springs Spiritual Church. My authority rests in the PCA in Central Florida Presbytery. I'm not a member of Springs Presbyterian Church. I love you guys like family. You understand that. But there's a sense in which Presbytery is my church. Springs is Lori's church. But that's where my membership resides, in the Presbytery. Anyway, I had a point I wanted to make, and most of you know how it is that you say too much and it leaves you. <laughs> so that's where I find myself as I end this morning. But, but anyway, I just say, hope you take these things to heart. You know, let, don't let this go in one ear and out the other ear. Just you know, shove it on the back shelf and, and think I'll just take care of it some other time or, or something like that. You may be at this place now where you don't really feel like you're growing as a Christian. And I know of a particular person who's basically said something like that just recently. And they want to put the responsibility or the blame of it on me. But that's not where it rests. You're responsible for you. Ultimately. No one else.